Welcome to episode three of Skeleton Songs. The episode where Lottie won't let me sit next to the cat. Now this is a vile calumny because there is a good it's literally reason. Literally true. It, I mean, it is true, but it's also very misleading because Alexis has ADHD, which means he apparently can do what he likes and justify all of it. And you may have heard in last episode that um, in our last episode that there was quite a big clang several times in the background. Um, that it's my job to edit out badly, which I can't do because I don't understand editing software. Um, so now I have physically interposed myself between man and cat. He's so fluffy. Thus justifying all the misogynist claims of literature forever. But we are talking this week about... Doppelgangers. Would you like to define doppelgangers? Uh, doublegoers. <laughs> well, we, we, when we started looking into this, we found there's, there's um, two kinds, really, of, of double. Uh, and the doppelgangers and, and fetchers and, and car and foregoers that we're all talking about. But there's um, duplicates of people that appear and there's elements of people that mass, uh, manifest as, as duplicates. And of course, I think one of the reasons the legends about this get so intricate is 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 that it's not like anybody sat down and said i'm going to create a legend uh, that exemplifies the external articulation of the base respect of the self um, and then Science. everyone else hewed to, to that theme so if somebody says there's this legend about if you go to a graveyard uh, at dawn then you see yourself it means you're going to die uh, but if you go to a graveyard at dusk and you see yourself it means you're going to have a long happy life uh, and then somebody else. I mean, two I actually love later. that idea, but sure. That, well, that's actually a thing. Is it? Yes. So, Wait, so sorry, there's, th- like a, there's like there's like a horoscope of seeing yourself. So, uh, well, this is the point: is, is is that it's all myth, it's all um, legend, it's all folklore, all of which, of course, intensely different things. And <laughs> um, somebody picks a, a, a compelling idea mm-hmm. from a piece of folklore two centuries before, writes into a short story, and it means something different. But. Um, the doppelganger is is the um, the, the doppelganger, literally, obviously uh, the identical uh, version of, of the person who is seen by that person or by somebody else. Mm. And often you'll like see them on a lonely road. You'll pass somebody, mm. and, and 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 they won't speak to you when you speak to them. And you'll go home and say, uh, I, I, "I saw that you." That was odd. That was odd. Uh, and you know, obviously, sometimes maybe it's just the, the doppelganger is somebody who really—oh shit, it's him! I, I'm just going to look at the ground and pretend I don't know him. But but yeah, if you see this is something that comes up again and again. Is if you see somebody, um, and this is the doppelganger myth in in in, in Germany and um, points east. It's the, the uh, fetchers in um, England, Ireland, Scotland. Uh, and if you see a fetch, one version uh, of a person at morning. And if you see, that means they're going to die. If you see a fetch at evening, that's good news. It means they're going to live a, a long, uh, wonderful life. You see, that's the difference between you and me. I, I discovered also that they were known as fetches, um, which I hadn't known before researching for this podcast. And my immediate response was, we're making fetch happen. We are finding <laughs> this is the mean girl dream. But you were like, well, I'm actually going to read about the myths and what actually happened. But go well, you on. have your episode title now. <laughs> Uh, so fetchers, doppelgangers, car. So that's that's uh, again. It's one of the things that comes up and starts. Which, for, start for an audio program, we should spell as K A. K A. This is one of the things that comes up as soon as you start looking at duplicates of of, of people. The um, uh, okay, I'm going to say this with an asterisk. The ancient Egyptians had 
asterisk, and we'll come back to that asterisk. <laughs> We're going to be doing um, audio punctuation from now on, so sit back and enjoy. Audio hyperlinks. Uh, a, a complex conception of the soul, and one of the elements of the, uh, the, the soul was the car, K-A. Now, the asterisk is as follows. Ancient Egypt was a civilization that stretched from something like 2500 BC to 50 BC when it shades into the into the Ptolemies. So talking about ancient Egyptian culture is like <laughs> talking about um, European culture from uh, before classical Greece all the way through to 21st century Europe. Because there was less technological advancement in Egypt, because it was in this very circumscribed um, domain along the Nile where it's really important you have your annual floods and you've got an autocratic top-down system of government. It changed a lot less than European culture changed in the last 2,500 years. And um, it is, as I understand, as a very amateur historian, certainly not an Egyptologist, still meaningful to talk about ancient Egyptian culture. But, for example, when you talk about Egyptian beliefs of the soul, I went, I went digging and... Um, uh, uh, first of all, I found a lot of Egyptian texts about the soul of wonderfully evocative names, um, like the Book of Traversing Eternity. Wow. Uh, or the Spell of the Twelve Caves. Oh, they are good. Or the Book of the Sky. Uh, but the, the coffin texts, which is the sort of end of, of the, um, I can't remember if it's Old Kingdom or Middle Kingdom, um, uh, the end of Old Kingdom. Anyway, it's not important. So the, the, the coffin texts are... It's not even one text. It's a bunch of stuff that was written like on the walls of pyramids and sarcophagi that included spells and descriptions of the afterlife and was assembled into a sort of more or less coherent body. And the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is the one that everyone's heard of, yeah. was really one text. But it was one text that was updated over the whole of the New Kingdom period. So that is about a thousand years. So, um, it, and it didn't have the same kind of, of top-down... Uh, idea of dogma that the Bible uh, has. So this is this is one body of opinion over a thousand years during which gods have risen and fell and some gods get promoted and some gods uh, get demoted and occasionally you get an enthusiast who tries to impose monotheism um, up and out and, um, on, on the whole thing and so on. But the point is the car is uh, physically in appearance it's physically identical to, to the person and um, one of the distinctive features of some Egyptian ideas about the afterlife is is that life begins when you die so you get put in the tomb and it's sort of important to keep looking after you you need funerary offerings mm. because the car's got to eat something so you go and leave beer in the tomb the wait so the car the is a version of you that is birthed to life when your original body dies so because that's not what I would normally call a doppelganger. Well, this is the thing is, is, is depending on, on uh, which text you read or in my case, which sort of tertiary versions of secondary accounts. The text this is a read. very, very in-depth research program. Uh, the, the car is something that you will see walking about uh, uh, while the person's still alive because their personality is in some way uh, separated uh, from their body. Because of the certainty of their impending death. Yes, so gotcha. you've got this 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 connection still with the idea of of, of the death and 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 things. Which would then come... explain the kind of thing about you know if you see it at a certain time that it means something because the car wouldn't exist unless some significant life event were about to occur to the individual. Yes, got it. Yeah, and you kind of I think often 
when you talk about doppelgangers or about parts of the soul that have appeared separately, it's something that's come unmoored because something important. And this is one of the things that comes that's up in the in Soul Codex a lot is that you get um, elements of the soul uh, as as organs of being that allow people to continue to exist. Like it takes work to continue to exist in the same way that your heart stops keeps your blood pumping around your body otherwise you drop dead um if you don't have the relevant bits of your soul all operating together then you'll just just pop out of existence but that's obviously not an egyptian thing that's that's much later that's like 15th century in the village of insol and the uh the egyptian thing is is bits of your bo- of your soul start separating and and again the uh your heart or your physical body are maybe parts of your air quote soul because of course there's no one single translation for the word soul in any language there'd be different things uh all the time i think that idea of unmooring is really interesting because i had no idea that this sort of idea of the doppelganger or the other self would go back as far as ancient egypt though of course Mm. as soon as you say it like they were well into their spirituality and had a whole kind of plan for all so it would make sense um but i know it primarily through gothic literature and the doppelganger is a famous trope of literature um, at that time um, and that often revolves around ideas of, of sort of divided selves or, or madness or, or um, some kind of cause of extreme anxiety or obsession and one of the things that the um, late sort of 20th century sorry late um, 19th century literature really loves to play with is the idea of is it madness or is it reality so mm. there is this constant sense of the individual becoming unmoored from reality and is it that they're sort of having this third eye that's opening to this other spectral realm where car and doppelgangers actually exist or is it that they are having some sort of breakdown and like most gothic literature it usually ends with a violent ending that mm. doesn't go well for the protagonist um, and leaves questions unanswered so one of the classic endings of a kind of doppelganger trope would be that ultimately the protagonist gets so obsessed or upset or angry that they kill the the lookalike and that often ends up killing them as well um you know you know stab you in the heart and then tells it that my mm. heart is beating too and some you know some of the highest profile doppelganger examples of literature of that time is of course strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde um which doesn't go great for him um or picture of dorian gray oscar mm. wilde's very famous novel um which again has a sense of, of ultimately destroying this other self and that being your destruction too i hadn't i hadn't thought about that and that ties into i won't go into it quite yet but the gerald durrell thing that i was going to talk about uh, uh later and it does tie into one of the things that started coming clear when I looked into this, which is there's two literary or mythological functions that, that doppelgangers, duplicates, fetchers tend to serve. And one is that they're externalizations of personality, as we said before, mm-hmm. and that, that really works and you're doing something literary. And it's a really natural thing to do if you're um, thinking about yourself, you externalize with yourself. But the other thing is identity horror. Mm, and I love identity horror. It's, it's, it's a, I don't have any existential issues. It's <laughs> so if you're thinking about which part of you is really you... Oh, God. Is it is it your body? Of course not. There's something in you, isn't it? Where does it exist? It exists... It's it, Obviously, the actual you is located at a point two inches behind, right your, behind your eyes. Yeah. yeah. Where your lines of sight happen to, <laughs> to, to go inside. Where is it the same person all the exists. time? But but as soon as it starts breaking out, as soon as you start seeing somebody else keep mistaken for you, so this this. Um, Have you ever been mistaken for someone else? Uh, I don't think so. I think I, mean, I was once accused of looking like Frank Zappa, which I found quite. That's upsetting. really me. It was quite. I I was a fat kid. It but was I was going to say there's a a, a a rich subgenre of stuff like Dostoevsky's The Double, which yep. I haven't read. Um, Ayardi's Tolstoy's better. 
film of the devil, yeah. uh, which I have seen, which yeah. is fucking great. And to be fair, the idiot has my heart forever. Another Dostoevsky classic. Uh, or you know, to keep lowering the tones, you keep being literary. Oh, Silent Hill too. <laughs> Wait until I get later on. It's all about the identity horror again. But but this this as soon as you start not being clear, which is actually you, or which other people think is you, because identity is about what other people think you are, mm-hmm. as well as what you think you are. So if everybody's saying that person over there is the real you, uh, we'll just put you behind this window and you can beat on it in horror as the other you puts an arm around your spouse and kids. Well, I have a, a very specific example. Um, that does sound horrific. And uh, we do live in an age of curated social media profiles mm. where a lot of people's interaction with us all is via this heavily curated version of ourselves that we put up online. And that leads to what we often call imposter syndrome, which is, of course, actually the doppelganger syndrome and actually quite a well-documented medical issue of mm. actually thinking your identity is someone else's. It's part of psychosis and delusion. But but we have a little inkling of that every day because we all, we, you know, none of us put up photos on Instagram of us waking up in the morning or falling down the stairs or forgetting to put the right shoes on. There's that C word thing you like, isn't there? The C word? The syndrome something. Do you mean Capgra? I possibly do. I didn't know it was Capgra. Okay. It is because a, a moron that I am, I've been pronouncing it Capgras syndrome. Right. And it turns out it's by a French guy. So it's definitely Capgra and therefore... Anyone who heard me talk about it obviously knew that I was talking nonsense. But yes, this is a really rare, badly understood um, syndrome where essentially you believe that people you know are being um, replaced by identical copies of themselves. Mm. Um, So it's not them, but it is them. And of course, this leads this poor patient to having horrific anxiety and there's a sense of kind of who, who is doing that and why. And there's a malignancy around the people they believe to have been replaced. And sometimes it revolves around one particular individual so there's lots of documented cases of spouses waking up one morning and thinking the person next to them who've been married to for years is not the person they know so they refuse to share beds with them and they refuse Mm. to to stay in the same house and it's obviously very frightening um and there are also documented cases of people thinking everyone in their close circle of friends is is actually being slowly replaced leading to general senses of anxiety and terror um uh interestingly there's a a temporal version which I hadn't heard about, where time is warp or substituted and you think that something weird is timey-wimey going on. Um, and there is a, a, a locational version as well, which is a called um, reduplicative paramnesia, which I just wanted to say, um, where you think that certain locations either exist uh, at the same time in another location or have been replaced or have been moved. So that's a whole other kettle of fish. And that's really interesting, but it, it, it's sort of the geographical equivalent of identity horror. If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you are, you don't know when you are, all these scenes. You're just kind of lost in this void. Yeah. And what, what really struck me about, I mean, Capgras syndrome is really interesting anyway, because it's just such a horrible idea. And obviously it ties into this idea of the doppelganger, that, that somebody is being replaced. And, mm. and, and how do you deal with that? It's not about yourself, but it is about you know people you really care about and love and know. And I looked into the scientific background of, of what we think is going on, because like I said, it's very misunderstood. And I found this really interesting thing, which is um, it's believed it's probably linked to prosopagnosia, which is where patients lose the ability to recognise faces. Mm. Um, this has been pros- uh, most uh, popularly documented in Oliver Sacks' The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, in case anybody is interested and hasn't read that. Brilliant. Um, but people believe that there are two pathways to facial recognition. There's the conscious 
pathway, which mm. is, you know, I'm looking at you, Alexis, and we've been dating nearly five years, so I'm fairly confident it's you, and I know who you are. But there is also the unconscious pathway, which is um, autonomic arousal. Now, that doesn't mean that you are very sexy, that I'm getting aroused. What it means is that my body is physically responding through electrodermal signals to this sense of recognition and knowledge. There's something physical that happens, which mm. is kind of your example of where does the soul start mm-hmm, and the body, mm-hmm. the body end, right? And what people believe happens with capgrass syndrome is um, the conscious uh, function is there. So I look mm. at you and I see Alexis, but my body's autonomic arousal is failing. So I get this inherent sense that you are the person I know, but there's something wrong. And a lot of patients have described it as this sense that there's just something off or it just isn't them because they're getting these two opposite signals to their brain, Mm -hmm. which is horrible. But I find fascinating from the idea of the kind of doppelganger motif. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting. Right? It it reminds me of two things. Uh, One is very briefly. It was not exactly doppelgangery. One is... um, uh, a horrifying short story called The Screwfly Solution. Uh, I think you've told me about it. I have this. told you about it. I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, but it's by um, uh, James Tiptree Jr., who is the uh, pseudonym of Alice Sheldon, who's a very interesting, complicated uh, SF author last century. And The Screwfly Solution deals with what happens when one biological... Um, a new uh, physiological really process Embarrassing. Uh, that's uh, normally associated with good things doesn't get associated with good things I have now read, read it it's horrible <laughs> and then you have nightmares sorry the other thing is it's much nicer it's Ted Chang lovely Ted oh, Chang I love Ted Chang uh, who uh, did the fa- most famously um, he wrote the story in which the film Arrival was based but Stories of Your Life and Others which I think has the Arrival story in, in that collection also so contains good. a story called Liking What You See a documentary which is a um, it, it's presented in the form of, of talking heads uh, doing transcripts in a near future world where there is a voluntary process called Caliagnosia which is sort of a version of prosphagnosia where you undergo a very subtle neurological operation that instead of preventing you from recognising faces, prevents you from judging how attractive a face is. So once you've been through Caliagnosia, you can't see whether or not somebody is attractive. Uh So it's sort of analogous in the story to something like uh, being a vegetarian, uh, where you just decide to stop uh, participating in something that you think is is bad even if other people still are like judging people on their appearance so so that, being ted chang i assume it has some um surprising outcomes it does there there there, there are some surprising outcomes and then there is a interesting thought-provoking twist it being ted chang i'm <laughs> well, really selling literature in this podcast but but everyone should read ted chang they should he's great and uh the but the other thing i wanted to talk about was the gerald durrell thing mm. which follows on very naturally from what you're saying so gerald durrell had you heard of Gerald Durrell before I mentioned him? No, but you said it about eight times, and I feel like he's my brother. So he's, he's I think he's, uh, uh, I'm 48, and Gerald Durrell was sort of famous in the previous generation, I, I, I guess. He was a conservationist and um, author uh, who was part of a peculiar literary family who founded a, um, a zoo for uh, endangered species in Jersey, where it exists to this day. So he was generally sort of another complicated, interesting person, but generally well regarded. And like he wrote a lot of fluffy, likable, 
books that sold well in airports about his adventures going off and collecting animals and about the bonkers things that happened when he was growing up as a nature-obsessed boy on a Greek island uh, with his mother. But he also wrote uh, this story called, uh, I think it's The Entrance, and uh, it comes at the end of a, a collection uh, of fluffy, friendly stories about his family and things. And it presents initially as he's gone to stay with a couple who he knows in a farmhouse in Provence and he talks about like their dogs and their cooking and uh, they say some sort of witty bohemian 1970s things which is a very Gerald Joel short story and then they casually mention that they have this old book that they bought from an auction uh, that some doctor left as a memoir in the 19th century and somebody says, That's oh, you're a, a writer, trope. Gerald. Why, why don't you read it before you go to sleep? And the rest of the story is this absolutely chilling, uh, gothic, classic gothic thing. It's obviously written explicitly as gothic that I won't spoil in too much detail. Um, and the plot's quite complex, but our protagonist goes to a lonely French chateau where he ends up snowed in in the dead of winter, oh alone in the chateau, with no company but a cat and a dog and a lot of mirrors oh, because God. the old man he used to own the chateau liked his mirrors and he starts to notice that this, initially with this really big mirror in an attic but also these other um, uh, mirrors all around the house all by the same inscription which is I am your servant feed and liberate me what? I am you what? What? And so one night he's sitting in front of the fireplace, um, looking at the reflection of the room in this big mirror, and the cat snoozing on his lap and the dog snoozing by the fire, and uh, he sees the door in the reflection is open a crack, just like in real life. But there's this sort of thing that's oh come through God. the door, and he thinks it's like a big caterpillar. It's sort of humping along the carpet. Uh, and he looks closer and he realises it's a it's a hand it's a, like a yellow hand with blackened nails Ugh. and he, he 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 sees it in the mirror and, and it, it's moving and he yields to temptation he throws like a fragment of his dinner over to the door uh, and the dog bounds after it and the hand suddenly comes to life grabs the dog and like snatches it breaks its neck and drags it behind the door leaving bloody fingerprints on the door. Oh, my God. And he thinks, well, I've just... Okay, this is, this is bonkers. Nothing's happened in, in, in the world. Um, it's, it's just in the reflection. And he thinks he just, just was uh, short on sleep and imagined the whole thing. But the next day when he's going around the house... He does not find the dog? No, the dog's there. But the dog doesn't have a reflection anymore. Ah! So, so he... And, but he's... he's and he still sees this this hand in the reflection, but only in the reflection. So is, is it a hand that, that leads some, to something behind the door? Is yes. It well, separated? this is the thing. So he thinks, I wonder what the thing behind the door is. So he... So, uh, so just to be clear, if you are ever in a gothic, <laughs> a gothic situation, never wonder what the thing is behind the door. Just, just think about what you're going to do when you have your Domino's pizza and sit down with your mum. That is the safest train of thought. So obviously what he does is, in a moment of foolish oh temptation you had to prove of this he scumples up a ball of paper and he rolls it in front of the door and the cat chases it and the hand grabs the cat I absolutely disapprove of that and, uh, draws it behind the door and after this he's just like okay maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't mess anymore um, and um, you think 
But unfortunately, he's fed whatever's behind the door. So the following day in the library, I remember the quote. Uh, so I was, I was. There's the doggy cat. There's also a parrot, um, and he's in the library talking to the parrot when this thing in the reflection, like, shambles in. Uh, and it, it looks like a sort of corpse in a winding sheet. There's a very grisly description. It grabs the parrot and wrenches the bars of the cage apart, consumes the parrot, all in the reflection. So he's gazing in horror. And the parrot's gazing in horror as well, because the parrot can see what's going on. Yeah. And the parrot's gone. Um, but uh, the... Um, uh, he, he, he's still there. But then the thing looks through the mirror and sees him. Oh, and God. then it looks at his reflection and it goes off his reflection he watches his reflection try and fail to fight this thing off and so his reflection is devoured as well and this thing comes right up to the mirror and it starts beating on it oh my god with its fists and like Durrell says he's a good writer and he's just not used to seeing these talents and other things uh like somebody trapped underneath the ice in a pond, slamming on the ice. And he thinks he starts to see cracks in the glass. And so does the thing. Break the mirror? And Maybe the thing, And the thing looks at him, looks at the cracks, looks back at his body. And it notices there's a heavy ebony-handled cane lying by the body. Because he was using this, he's still holding this ebony-handled cane in his reflection. Uh-huh. So it lurches over and picks up the ebony handle cane and comes over towards the mirror. And then uh, he, he picks up a chair in terror and smashes the mirror. And it's gone. He can't see the thing anymore. And then he realises that he's now completely alone in this mansion, which contains at least a dozen other mirrors scattered over the whole of a sprawling chateau. That's about two thirds of the way through the story, and oh I won't spoil God, the rest. I for want you. to read it. It's very, very good. It's That's called a, The Entrance, and amazing. it's in um, a, a collection called The Picnic and Such Like Pandemonium. <laughs> the, everything else in there is super wholesome, but yeah. That's I am brilliant. your servant. Feed me and liberate me. I am you. There's a resolution to the story, which is also sort of troubling and uncertain in its, its meaning. Well, uh, Mirrors is something that is a trope of the writer that I wanted to briefly talk about, uh-huh. which is my final example of um, doppelgangers in literature. And it's a much maligned part of literature. Um, I know we talk a lot about like the classical canon um, and, and traditional books. And this is a webcomic artist by the name of Emily Carroll. Um, and she is most famous for two collections of her comics. One is Through the Woods, um, and one of which is um, When I Arrived at the Castle. And that one is particularly Mirror orientated it's a very um sort of angela carter-esque um feminist vampire thing but um through the woods is what shot her to fame it um she actually began with her first comic i think that went viral is called his face all red Mm. and i love this story it haunts me more than like most other things that i've ever read um and it uses a lot of very traditional fairy tale motifs so the premise is there are these two brothers who exist in this you know unnamed village um very rural i think they're all shepherds um, and there's the elder brother who's handsome and strong and popular and he's married to um, I think she's just described as like a plump wife with starry eyes and everyone loves him and he's very brave and he has lots of sheep and his younger brother is not as handsome and not very popular and quite quiet doesn't have any sheep and there's a sort of intimation that maybe he kind of envies what his mm. brother has as you might being obviously the less good version of a brother pair 
and this village begins to be terrorized by something that comes to steal sheep in the night um and you know first couple of nights it happens people think oh well this happens you know wolves come out whatever and of course the village is by the way next to a forest as you would expect um but i think there's one night where something like four sheep are taken at once and the villagers think you know this can't be can't go on we've got to send somebody into the forest to hunt this monster down and kill it so we can continue with our lovely idyllic Hmm. rural life and of course the brave noble elder brother says um uh, i'll do it um i think that the younger brother might actually have decided to to offer himself initially because he's finally like this is my moment to prove that i'm worthy and then the elder brother says i'll help you and the younger brother's like yay (laughs) and everyone's like oh you're so brave elder brother and i guess younger brother too whatever so they go off into the woods together to hunt this creature um and uh, again i'm not going to ruin the story because it's so good and it's actually available online you can read the whole thing in its utter glory um if you just google you should buy the book though it's gorgeous. you should buy the book and these links will be in the podcast notes um but it's just genius um but something happens in the woods which means that um the younger brother is the only one who comes back to the village and he tells everybody that this thing has happened and everyone's very sad and they will obviously miss this elder brother but the younger brother feels like you know i finally did something good and everyone's kind of grudgingly respectful of him and then a couple mornings later he wakes up and everyone seems really happy and they're really happy because the elder brother has appeared back in the village Mm. which we know that he should not have um and this sparks this whole uh very traditional kind of growing horror doppelganger trope of there's this one character the protagonist who knows that this cannot be the person that he appears to be although physically he's exactly the same and the only difference and only the protagonist noticed this is the coat he is wearing is not torn and bloodied and no one else notices that he's just back to where he is and the only thing that he does that's a bit odd and again nobody notices this is he's perfectly normal he talks he eats he sleeps he's happy he will not look at the younger brother Mm. so eventually the younger brother gets so stressed out about this as you would even though there's nothing you know actually threatening going on that he goes back into the woods and he retraces their steps and he goes back to the place where the event occurred um, to finally have this last look. And I'm not going to tell you what it happened. What, what happens? It's a very short comic that you should read, but the final panel is one of the most haunting things ever. And it doesn't explain it, but it gives you this this very complete finale. And and just the idea of of uh, it's pretty clear that this re- represents more than just uh, a face forward tale of mm. somebody coming back who shouldn't be able to come back. It's quite clear that it's psychologically orientated, that there is definitely an element of envy, of guilt, of probably other things going on in the um, protagonist's mind, or I suppose the antagonist, depending on how you feel about it. Um, And this is a great example of the doppelganger being a reflection of the individual's personal issues, rather than being this sort of separate entity um, that actually just comes on the scene like you know a dog or a cow or or a monster Mm. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating and I never thought that I'd find such an interesting and nuanced portrayal of doppelgangers and gothic tropes in a webcomic but that's Emily Carroll for you she's utterly brilliant it occurs to me that one of the we we started out saying what what, what are doppelgangers and the the myth is very uh, easily uh, described it's you know if you sometimes you see somebody who looks like you but isn't you and it's not clear what it is, and sometimes it means you're going to die. And there's that, that that's nothing, but it's the jumping-off point that's interesting. And, of course, doppelgangers went into a bunch of other fantasy contexts, most notably a D&D, as humanoid creatures that can take the shape of other creatures. Those are shapeshifters. They're different. Well, this is the thing. Uh, 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 doppelgangers in D&D are perfectly um, good. In fact, a good... Uh, 
basis for a story because you know things that shapeshift and, and take people's place are, are interesting but at the same time it's the classic rpg problem of taking something non-specific and strange that is deliberately not finally explained mm. and having to render it in a coherent specific way where you can ask questions about the life cycle of the beings because it's difficult to maintain that deliberate imprecision and ambiguity when you've got a bunch of players sitting around a table who say things like, I poke it with a stick. Does it turn back into its original form? Is the blood the same? You know, it's, it's just harder to do that in that yeah. context. That's one of the things that um, that you can do with, with some kinds of game, but you can't do with others. Well, I think that wraps it up for our brief run-through of doppelgangers and car and generally spooky things that look like other things that they shouldn't and mirrors um, but if we've missed anything out, let us know. If you know of any doppelganger tropes that you think are unusual or unique, um, ping us. If it is even is us at all. That's true. You'll never know. Our voices could just be the voices of people who've come, eaten our brains and taken over our mortal form. Have a spooky day!